All right, well, if you have a copy of God's Word, please turn with me to Micah, Old Testament book of Micah, chapter 6, almost done with this book. Just to give you a heads up, Hunter was supposed to preach today, but he has, uh, he's sick, so we had a, we had a, um, change some things up. So this week I'll preach Micah 6, uh, and, um, Next week, uh, Jesse Holmes will still be preaching for us. And then the following week, Hunter will finish up Micah for us in Micah chapter 7. And then we will jump into, Lord willing, uh, the book of Genesis. So just keeping that in mind so we don't get confused. But Micah chapter 6 is where we are this morning. And I'll read those words for us. This is God's word. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened with Shidom to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness and the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives but not anoint yourself with oil. You shall tread grapes but not drink your wine. For you have kept the statues of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. This is God's word. It's entirely true and it's given to us in love. Let me pray and we'll jump right in. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you remind us, um, even in, uh, in a difficult text um, like Micah chapter 6, it doesn't end on a good note. But God, we, we know that you have uh, ordained this particular passage for us this morning, this Sunday after Christmas. And so, God, I pray that you would give us ears that are attentive um, to what you would have us to hear this morning and learn from your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So I, every year, I, and I've read the book too, Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, but it, we also watch the, the, um, the cartoon, the animated version, the Disney animated version as well, which I think is probably the best one with Jim Carrey um, playing most of the parts. But I, I couldn't help thinking as I was watching it again this year, um, what would have happened if Ebenezer Scrooge woke up after his terrifying night with the three spirits and went on living uh, the exact same way he had been living previously. What would have happened? That he just forgot about how horrifying his ending was. This, this just uh, terrifying news that he's received and, and looking back over his life and to see that he had wasted his entire life by being a selfish old man. What if he just woke up the next day and said, well, I'm still alive and I'll still go on living the way I've always lived honestly i had the thought when i was watching it again that the way he was changed was just so unbelievable i mean i really thought there is absolutely no way anybody would wake up from that and then be changed so radically and i think the reason i have this kind of cynical outlook is because it is unbelievable in and of ourselves, it's unbelievable. I mean, how many times have you made a, a vow before God and broken it? Where you have said, um, you know, if, if God, if you get me out of this jam, uh, I, will, I will serve you the rest of my days. I will never do this sin or that sin, and I will serve you. I will be completely devoted to you. And just as soon as you are, quote, delivered, you go right back to living the exact same way you had been living. Why do we do this? Well, it's because it's the classic problem of our fallen condition uh, focus. We forget God. Whether you have been a Christian for many, many years or you are just now um, believing, you forget God. It's the problem that we all have. We forget what He is like, so we forget His character. Or we misinterpret his character. We don't look at God's word to get um, his character um, from there. We forget what he's done for us. We forget to worship him. We forget to live our lives according to the promises of his word. And we live it according to what we want to do and how we want to live our lives. We forget Mary's song Jesus' mother's song from Luke 1, the Magnificat, where she says, sings, God has remembered you. God has remembered his people. God has shown you mercy in Christ. God has given you salvation in his son, is what Mary sings. And then this forgetfulness can lead you into unbelief of the God of the Bible. We keep forgetting, we keep forgetting, we keep forgetting, and eventually that ends us in unbelief. Well, this is where we find the Israelites in our text today. They're not quite in unbelief yet, but they're heading in that direction. They're in the midst of forgetting. They have, they, have, they have clearly seen God act on their behalf. They know the stories of the past. They've seen God carry them uh, physically in their present. And they've heard God promise them from their preachers, from their promises, that He is going to deliver them in the future. 
God has essentially said, I have you held in my hands and I will not let you go. And yet they forget. And now they've walked through suffering and completely forgotten who God is. And in their forgetfulness, they gravely misinterpret his work towards them as somehow malicious and burdensome. So I want us to look at what is happening in our text in three ways today that will help us understand our own forgetfulness. And these are not in your worship guide there, but if you want to list them down, these are the three ways in which we want to look at this text to help us with our own forgetfulness. By looking at, one, the indictment of the Lord, two, the requirements of the Lord, and then three, the predicament of unbelief. So the indictment of the Lord, the requirements of the Lord, and then the predicament of unbelief. So first, the indictment of the Lord in in verses 1 through 5. In these first couple of verses, uh, we have God uh, essentially calling his people out. He is calling them to the mat. Mat. He is is setting up his own uh, kind of court hearing for them to come and kind of defend themselves before God. Because what they've done, they have accused God of wrongdoing towards them. And now God is saying, I am ready to defend my case before you. And so in verses 1 and 2, he calls the mountains and the hills as witnesses. Now that might sound a little bit strange to our ears. But essentially what God is saying is that all of creation... Every bit of creation, even the mountains and the hills, stand as witnesses against Israel's indictment of the Lord. That that creation can, can look at what God has done and give witness to God's work amongst his people. So this is what God is doing here. So the charge that, because the charge that his people have brought against him is that he has wearied them. The people say, God has wearied us. Which is kind of comical if you've been hanging with us uh, as we've studied Micah over Advent season. uh, Because we know that God has done everything but wearied his people. But before you start thinking, how foolish of these people. How dumb they are and kind of slow to see and slow to hear about what God has done to them. How forgetful they are. Think about your own life. How often do you accuse God of the mess that you find yourself in? You may ask, why why is God allowing this? Why is God allowing uh, these bad things to happen? Why is he allowing me to walk through this particular kind of suffering? I've been a good person. I go to church on Sundays or occasionally, at least during Christmas time. Uh, I voted Republican, for goodness sakes. I've done everything that God, I think God, intends for me to do, right? Why does God weary me so? Why does he drag me through this? And the answer to your question is, he doesn't. He doesn't weary you. And that, that, because that's not in God's character to do so. God does not weary us. Elsewhere in the Bible, it says this explicitly. 
In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 3, you may be familiar with this verse, says, A bruised reed, he, God, will not break. In a faintly burning wick, he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So if you are a bruised reed this morning or a faintly burning wick, God will not break you and he will not quench you. And this is later repeated by the gospel writer Matthew. This, this very verse from um, Isaiah 42, actually it's, it's 3 through 5, I think, actually, that Matthew quotes. But Matthew quotes from Isaiah 42 again to make the point that the way in which God uh, uh, fulfills this promise of not wearying his people, not breaking the bruised reed or, or quenching the faintly burning wick, is that he fulfills this in Jesus. Jesus has come. And the fact that God sent Jesus means he does the opposite of making you weary. This is why the Christmas carol, O Holy Night, says, A weary world rejoices. A weary world rejoices. Those who sing this hymn, they are weary because of their own brokenness. And the brokenness of this world and rejoicing at the coming of Christ. So, because of that, because God is not a God who wearies you, God therefore brings the indictment now against his people. And so he asks them in verse 3, very direct questions. O my people... What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Now, I don't know about you, but I I sometimes fear asking questions like that of people because I know that I'm probably going to get an honest answer. I've probably have uh, done something to somebody to say, like, how what have I done to you? Or how have I wearied you? How have I hurt you? And I'm probably going to get the response. Well, here's a list how you've done that. God can ask these questions with confidence to know that he is that he will not receive an answer because he has not done these things. He has only done good to his people. He has not wearied them. So he can say to them explicitly, answer me. Tell me how I have done this because I know I have not. And so in verses 4 and 5, if they're not convinced enough, he then walks his people shortly through the most central event currently in their history, which is the Exodus or the Passover that we see in the book of Exodus. He tells them, I, I rescued you out of Egypt. I redeemed you from those who held you as slaves. I gave you uh, healthy shepherds in Moses and Aaron and in Miriam. I have led you out. Because ultimately the reason they accuse God uh, of making them weary is because they've forgotten his mighty works amongst them. And so God points them back to the mightiest work that he has done for them in delivering them out of their slavery, their bondage. 
and reminds them that He is not a wearisome God, but a saving God. A God who delivers His people. And isn't this why we've celebrated Advent these past four weeks? To remember what God has done for us in Christ. Advent is not meant to kind of hype you up for Christmas Day. Advent is for us to remember what it is that Christ has done for us. To remember that we, too, once lived in darkness and now the the light of Christ has shone uh, to those who, who, who believe. To remember that He is still a God who saves His people. He's still a God who rescues His people. He's still a God who gives His people good shepherds to lead them and to proclaim the gospel to them and to remind them uh, not to forget, not to forget their Savior. And because of this, we must see that if God doesn't weary you, if God doesn't weary you, there is another reason you are weary. And our second point lets us know what lets us know what that is by uh, by by kind of listing out what God requires of us. So in verses six through eight, in these verses, God is saying, "If your life was lived according to my requirements, according to my promises, you would not be weary. You would not have forgotten me." So essentially what God is saying to them, the reason you are weary is because of yourself. The reason you are weary is because of the choices that you have made. The reason that you are weary is because of your own forgetfulness. You have chosen to forget. You have chosen not to believe. You've chosen to create a God of your own making, which is what he simply does is he lists some of the things in which they, uh, they think they're required to do to, to make God love them or to please God in verses 6 and 7. And this is wearisome because you can't live up to the God that even you create in your own mind. I have a friend... Who, uh, who used to always complain about every church he went to. I don't know if he still does this, but every church he went to, he would sit down and have coffee together, and he would just complain, complain, complain. And one day he told me, honestly, if I were to start my own church and had it just the way I wanted, I'd probably complain about that church too, which is true. And it's the same sentiment we find when we create a God after our own image, isn't it? That at the end of the day, this God, who in your mind, maybe, is perfect, just makes you more weary. For one, you can never satisfy him or her. You can never do anything that is good enough to please them. And they're always changing to meet your needs constantly changing so you never know what you're going to get the next day not so with the god of the bible the god of the bible is on the opposite end of the spectrum of the god that you have created in your own mind as one commentator put it um, he said god does not require huge burdensome sacrifices before he will be pleased 
He doesn't require those of you. You don't have to clean yourself up to come before God. You don't have to try to get yourself out of the mess that you've made before you can come to God. The commentator goes on. He simply asked for basic humanity and humility. And that's what you get in verse 8. Let me read that for us again. Pretty famous verse, pretty well known. Even if you don't know the Bible that well, you, you probably have heard this verse quoted. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Now this verse, believe it or not, is put here to make a point. Not necessarily to provide application for the chapter, although as a preacher, it is very tempting. There are three very clear applications that you could make there, but that's not the point of Micah chapter 6. Now, the reason verse 8 is put here is to say to God's people and to you, God has not wearied you by asking too much of you. No, God, you you have wearied yourselves by not living according to God's love for you. That's why you're weary. He has told us these things in verse 8 out of his love for us, and all he simply calls you to do is walk in them. You see, we won't live the way God requires us to live until we truly know who the God of the Bible is. If you look there in verse 6 and 7, God kind of walks them through uh, what it is they think God requires of them. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? No, God says. The only way that we truly know who God is is not trying to do all of these things for Him, but to look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, unfortunately, we don't always believe it to be that easy. We, we either think, one, that the gospel is too good to be true or too hard to obey. And the latter is where Israel still dwells in these final verses of our text. As we recognize the predicament that their, that their unbelief that they are kind of creeping into puts them in before God. And hopefully, we heed the warning we find in these verses by looking at the foolishness of God's people and their predicament of unbelief. In verses 9 through 16. Now, these verses begin with what the people should have done in the first place. In verse 9, God tells us that they should have heard and heeded the rod of the Lord. They should have seen the discipline that they were, were receiving and they should have heeded that advice quickly. Another way we could say this is they should have taken stock on what was currently happening to them and asked the question, why? 
and then dug into the Bible to receive the answers. Why is this happening to me? The New Testament book of Hebrews, in chapter 12, the author is citing from the book of Proverbs when he says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So simply what Israel needed to do and what you may need to do is to repent of your sins. But instead Israel we see continues to walk in their sin. They completely avoid uh, confession and repentance, something that we did earlier in our service today. And because of this, they will suffer the consequences for their actions. We see that in verses 14 through 16. Look there again with me. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you do preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you will bear the scorn of my people. So simply what God is doing is living according to his own promises. We see this throughout the Old Testament that when God makes a, a covenant with his people, a promise with his people, he says, if you, if you break, if you, if you keep the covenant, you will receive blessings beyond all measure. I'll give it to you. I will lay it before you. But if you break it, this is what will happen. Very clearly spelled out for God's people. So they are being handed over to what are called the covenant curses. So they will be uh, receiving plagues and death and wasted harvest and war. And let me just tell you, because these are the covenant curses and because God's people have broke the promises, these are a sound and fair judgment for God's people. And I've said it over and over again. This, this is God's people he's doing this to. These aren't sinners outside the walls. These aren't unbelievers in God. These are people who fully believe in God. Who have forgotten him. Now this is a dark note to end on especially after the, the joyful celebration of Christmas. This is, a, this is a dire note to end on. But something we cannot miss in the midst of God's judgment here is that God doesn't leave them. God doesn't leave his people. He doesn't just say, look, I'm done with you and I'm wiping my hands of you and I'm going to move on and I'm going to find another group of people who do a better job than this, than you. God doesn't do that. He doesn't break the covenant with them because one, that is outside of his character. God will never break his covenant with you. He will never break his promise uh, to you, even though you break it with him every day. God says, I will not 
break my covenant with you. God is faithful to his people even when they're blind in their sin. Even when they have their doubts. Even when they live in their kind of cynical ways, as I often do. And despite all of this, God invites his people back. This is why Jesus came 2,000 plus years ago. He comes to rescue us. He comes to redeem his people. Paul tells us in a couple of places, in one in 1 Timothy 1, Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. And then elsewhere we read that while we were still sinners, while we were yet sinners, while we were still locked in darkness, Christ died. He doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He doesn't wait for us to make ourselves right so that we can stand before him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So really what we learn in this text is that he is truly Emmanuel. He is truly God with us, even and especially at our worst. Amen. Let me pray for us.